We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing a new U.S. arms sale that could set a long-called-for precedent, questions remaining over a deal between Beijing and the Vatican, the now annual United Nations rally in New York, rumblings about Chinese pressure on APEC to ban Taiwan, and a rather worrying survey about microplastic levels in tap water and seafood. But we'll begin with the demolition this week of a temple, and I use that word very, very loosely, dedicated to the Chinese Communist Party. The Biyun Temple in Erlin Township was last week the focus of an article published by the New York Times, and as we record this show, much of it is now in rubble. The Zhanghua County government began demolishing the illegal add-ons to the controversial temple on Wednesday of this week, after it cut water and power supplies to the buildings last week. And according to Deputy County Magistrate Lin Mingyu, it may take up to seven days and cost some five million NT to tear down all of the complex's illegal structures and the owner, one Mr Wei Ming Ren, will be liable to pay the demolition costs. Now the county, interestingly enough, had previously refused to tear down the illegal structures after a legal dispute between Wei and the nuns who used to live there was settled. But Zhanghua County Magistrate Wei Ming Gu reportedly opted to demolish the building following publication of the New York Times article. Now the owner was known for his pro-Beijing views and the temple was packed with pro-Beijing paraphernalia. And of course, Beijing waded into its demolition, with the spokesman for China's Taiwan Affairs Office saying demolition of the buildings clearly demonstrates the DPP's indulgence of Taiwan independence activities while it attacks and persecutes Taiwanese who advocate unification. So, of course, this temple, so to speak, Donovan, was in your neck of the woods and you know about it. You've known about it for many years. Yeah, and we've talked about it on our Wednesday reports at Central Taiwan reports, yeah, the, the temple in Arshui in uh, Zhanghua County. Yeah, Wei Mingu, uh, up until this last week, uh, he uh, basically said <clears throat> he wouldn't uh, tear it down because uh, Taiwan is a democracy, um, and unlike uh, China, which is a totalitarian dictatorship, and he wanted to draw that contrast. There's a couple other elements, I think, which also kept him from tearing it down. Uh, one is that there's a lot of illegal structures in uh, the county, and of course, five million to tear it down is, is a fair amount of uh, you know pocket change. And so there wasn't an enormous amount of pressure on him to tear it down. Uh, on the 19th, when the New York Times report came out, all of a sudden this became much more of a national issue rather than a local curiosity. Well, that's the key word there. Uh, thank you for using it. That it was a curiosity. Suddenly, uh, we're we're alert and eager to take action on the other key word, which is illegal structures. As uh, we all know, illegal structures are a long-running problem in municipalities throughout Taiwan. So the concern here is selective enforcement uh, simply because of uh, some international media coverage over something that uh, is well-known here in Taiwan. So the, the response 
from the Zhanghua County government is somewhat peculiar uh, for those reasons. Again, selective enforcement and changing its position uh, simply because of uh, some international media coverage. It's almost like, Gavin, if there was some uh, municipal infrastructure issue, uh, illegal structure around where you live here in Taipei City, and you came on the air and complained about it and because you're, you're in the media, uh, and 10,000 or 100,000 people in your audience heard it, suddenly the Taipei city government would be responsive to you, Gavin. There's also an election coming up in November, which no doubt paid a, paid a part in this. Yeah, but if this was electoral <laughs> politics yeah. in, in Zhanghua, then why wouldn't they have taken action earlier? Well, the thing is, there have been complaints for years. Um, the the neighbors in the area, of course, obviously the nuns have been complaining, uh, although legally they lost their battle. Um, neighbors in the area have been fed up, partly because of the tourist bus coming in uh, on the little dinky winding roads that lead up to it, and also because they played the uh, Chinese national anthem uh, really loudly. Um, but yeah, for all those, all, you know, for all these reasons, you know, the county government has not acted until there was international uh, coverage, which led to the pressure. Well, as a matter of process, whether Zhanghua or other municipal governments around Taiwan, that, that's just not good process. We no. won't do anything, uh, even uh, when there's evidence of illegal structure, violates building codes, possibly violations of, of noise code ordinance with with the volume of of the PRC national anthem, but we won't do anything except when there's some international media coverage. That does not reflect well uh, on the county government, even though they have now uh, ordered the demolition of the illegal structure. There's one other odd thing about this. The the county government, and I'm not really buying this, to be honest, um, they claim that another procedural step and and that, that untied their hands uh, to move forward uh, without any controversy over whether or not it was an illegal structure was cleared on the 11th, which is uh, just over a week before the New York Times um, uh, report appeared. But it smelled to me a little bit like this was just a fig leaf. I I suppose we could say, if you believe that, I got a temple in Zhanghua. I'll sell you. (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) And of course, the owner, he apparently is in a bit of bother because he hit a county official last week as well. Yeah, on Friday, um, <clears throat> when they came and uh, told him they were going to tear it down, uh, he reacted violently. Well, there's no place for that in Taiwan politics, so uh, it should be universally condemned and generally, although people get emotional about their political beliefs in the case of Mr. Wei, his support for unification, however uh, odd that might seem to most of us, especially if he's calling for unification under the Communist Party. Uh, they, there's just no no place, and it's unfortunate to see that no matter which side of the political divide in Taiwan uh, commits such actions. I, I'm, I'm not sure he's quite on a, on, a, on a political divide. I think he's a little way out there in the margins. <laughs> I mean, do you think he was Donovan? Do you think he was he was viewed by the locals as a bit of a crackpot? Yes. Uh, basically, the neighbors just found him kind of annoying. Um, I haven't seen any reporting at any time in over the years that I've seen reporting on him where a single neighbor had anything nice to say about him or his activities. Well, uh, it, it might be a factor as well that there were fewer tourists coming uh, and pumping money to the local economy as well. That that certainly would, would frustrate those um, who had depended on Chinese I, tourist I'm not dollars. I'm sure they were sticking around in the neighborhood, though. I don't think they were spending much money there. I think otherwise, if they had been, uh, they might have, there would have, 
probably have been at least one report of somebody saying something good about him. I, I don't think that the, the tourists coming through were, were spending much money in the neighborhood. Um, and a lot of the tourists that were coming through were, were not actually tourists. They were Chinese journalists, and they were not also spending a lot of money. Right, we shall move on from the demolished temple and we'll look at arms sales. And of course, the Trump administration on Tuesday morning, Taiwan time, announced approval of a $330 million arms sale to the island. Now, the package included spare parts for several aircraft, including F-16s, F-5s, IDFs and C-130s, as well as related logistics and program support elements. Now, a Pentagon spokesperson says the sale will improve Taiwan's ability to defend itself without altering the basic military balance in Asia. While the Thai administration is expressing its thanks to the US government and Foreign Ministry spokesman Andrew Lee this week said that the arms package shows the US commitments to Taiwan are genuine and it will enhance the island's defensive capabilities. Now China asserted itself into the sale, demanding the US cancel it and also warning of severe damage to bilateral relations and mutual cooperation if Washington refused to do so. What was more interesting, though, is the foreign ministry spokesman, Gung Shuang, who claimed that the sale violated international law and the basic norms governing international relations. But as the Associated Press put it, it's unclear what aspect of international law the Chinese official was actually referring to. Now, of course, pretty boring arms sale when it comes to arms bits for aeroplanes. Not very sexy, Ross, No. And especially considering the age of some of that, air, some of those aircraft, including the the F five, which has now turned into the gift that keeps on giving for uh, the United States and and the uh, companies that provide uh, spare parts, electronics, upgrades, maintenance, etc. For aircraft that Gavin is, as you know very well, are decades, many decades old. The, the F five started uh, rolling off the assembly line um, before I was born. Uh, and it's still in service here in Taiwan, which gives you a, a more broader sense of the challenges Taiwan faces in effectively uh, uh, deterring any Chinese military activity. This is a small dollar amount. It is defensive in nature. It, it are, it, as you said, it's spare parts. The United States would have done this sale uh, regardless of any other incidents, actions, issues and tensions in the U.S.-China relationship or even in the Taiwan-China relationship. So to put that into some more more detailed context, if this was Maing Zhou's administration or if the KMT had won the 2016 presidential election, Taiwan would still need these spare parts for, for these older aircraft and the United States would still sell them. Uh, as uh, As many people have speculated, though, this might signal the big change and how the U.S. goes about weapon sales. Yes, the word bundled. There you go. Yeah. And, and whether or not the U.S. will uh, announce its intention to sell weapons on a case-by-case basis going forward, as opposed to the past practice of bundling uh, various spare parts, uh, missiles, tanks, whatever it is, and, and very doing very large dollar amount bundles only once every two to three years, which has been the recent practice. Yeah, the uh, I, I mean, I, and for that reason, actually, I think this potentially is one of the most significant uh, arms deals in uh, you know to Taiwan in recent history. Um, uh, now, admittedly, there haven't been very many. Um, 
the uh, and the reason is, uh, you know, as uh, Ross mentioned, there uh, is the past practice, of course, with these giant, uh, these giant, uh, these are you know these giant ad pack, uh, sorry, <laughs> arms packages that um, that would trigger massive responses from China, and supporters of Taiwan have been advocating for a very long time, and this is also part of the wording in the latest defense bill in the U.S., was to to specifically encourage the U.S. government to approve arms sales on an ongoing, regular basis, meaning that you know, China would then have to respond, you know, apoplectically every single time there was a deal, which could be every few weeks or every few months, um, and it made it makes it much much harder for China to get attention or sympathy or uh, to get any, you know, draw any attention to its case uh, if these if these sales are just constantly uh, ongoing. Um, now, I also saw a report as well that France uh, approved. Pretty much simultaneously, uh, and I, I'm g- going to go out on a limb and guess there may have been a connection on this uh, to approve parts for the Mirage 2000s. Um, it was a relatively small package, but they really needed the parts. Um, and as for the F5, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Gavin. I think you know more about this than I am. But are they're used as trainers if, if nowadays? Is that correct? In fact, Gavin, aren't they used as decoys in some cases? They fly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought they're just parked on the apron as decoys. <laughs> I guess they could be used for many purposes. They are fighter jet aircraft, after all. Uh, yeah, paperweights, you know, that kind of thing, yeah. Well, I could line them up on the beach like tanks and use them as... as uh uh, anti-amphibious landing uh, defenses as well. Uh, but e- even for the Mirage spare parts, I mean, this is not new. You know, France uh, has uh, adhered to its obligations to provide service to these aircraft, uh, uh, but I wouldn't take it as a significant signal or upgrade of French-Taiwan defense cooperation. I thought the timing was interesting. It suggested the potential of coordination uh, between the U.S. and the French. Well, that that just yeah, but that just gives the French a a little bit of cover because China will direct most of its anger at the United States, which it clearly has. That that was what I thought was a significant part: is that the U.S. and the French seem to be coordinating on this, and that uh, it gave the French cover. That 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 was sort of my why I thought it was somewhat significant. Also this week, the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council President Rupert Hammond Chambers came out and he said that he believes that notifying each sale when it's ready is a positive development. And he also said it indicates that there's more potential activity towards the end of this year and into early 2019 vis-à-vis more arms sales. Well, part of that is dependent on the budgeting cycle here in Taiwan and whether or not the government is going to request the legislative UN to make available uh, increasingly larger defense budgets. This is an issue that, uh, of course, gets an enormous amount of attention from uh, people who uh, write about research uh, and policymakers in in the defense and national security space. We all know that the United States for many years has uh, quietly uh, put some polite pressure to say or, or to ask Taiwan to increase its defense budgets. President Tsai has made some progress, not as much as uh, the experts think needs to be spent on defense. So you know, get, uh, Donovan mentioned you know, maybe it'll be every few weeks or every few months uh, going forward, uh, the United States agreeing to sales of, of weapons and or spare parts. But that is very much dependent on whether or not ever increasing larger budgets will be 
uh, allotted here in Taiwan. And as we approach the election season, and I'm not referring to the local election, I'm referring to the national election in January 2020, as of today, it's hard, it, it's hard to say how the defense spending will factor in. Uh, past examples of elections or going into elections, it seems more like politicians are rushing to offer constituents all sorts of increased social benefits, which means they're not going to prioritize defense spending because they want money to spend on housing subsidies and, and other types of uh, things that benefit the voters in their pocketbooks. Uh, but whether or not that will change, given the overall environment, we, we, we'll have to see. Right? As President Tsai going to say, I'm, I'm the national security president, and there's, there's a China threat that keeps growing, thus going into the election year. Uh, my policy is to spend more on defense and, and less on uh, you know, social benefits and things that appeal directly to voters' uh, personal economic interests. We just don't know as of today. It's something to watch in the coming months. Right now, the day after we recorded last week's show and discussed the issue, the Vatican and Beijing signed a historic accord on the appointment of bishops in China. Now, the government here this week has been reiterating that it's been assured by the Holy See that the agreement with Beijing will not affect diplomatic ties. But what I found interesting was Hong Kong's Cardinal Joseph Zen was quoted by Taiwan's central news agency as saying that he believes the Vatican will eventually establish formal diplomatic ties with China but will also seek to continue to maintain relations with Taiwan. And then two days later, the same Cardinal Joseph Zen was quoted by the AFP as saying that he believes the Vatican will sever official ties with Taiwan following the signing of the accord and is also willing to do so in order to seek full diplomatic ties with China. So some very mixed messages there, Ross. We know from past examples of when countries, uh, for, for this discussion, we'll, we'll have to treat the Holy See as a country, uh, when countries have de-recognized Taiwan or, or when they try to recognize China, they have to de-recognize Taiwan. Uh, up to now, China has never accepted dual recognition. There are people who think that the Holy See could uh, use its uh, influence uh, to the extent it has any over China uh, to uh, uh, persuade China to allow it to have formal relations both here in Taipei and in Beijing. That is likely impossible, which means that the default model after uh, China and the Holy See established diplomatic relations would be to follow what most other major and smaller countries do, which is to have an unofficial representative office. Obviously, in the case of the Holy See, it cannot be called the trade office or the commercial office. Uh, so they can probably have some name like the Holy See Cultural Foundation in Taiwan or the Holy See Institute in Taiwan, if we're going to model it on you know, AIT or, or other similarly named institutions. But the likelihood that there could be formal diplomatic relations both with Taipei and Beijing is extremely low. Um, yeah, you know, as far as the, the relations go, um, I, you know, I could, I could see the case being made that it may happen going forward. Um, the, the tricky part here, of course, um, is we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes in either case. I mean, neither the, the Chinese Communist Party nor the Vatican are very well known for their openness uh, on what's going on. Uh, ostensibly, right now, this just means that the um the both the communist party and the vatican have some uh ha, both have some say in who's chosen as a bishop 
um, and the Pope has the final right of, of veto, apparently, and I believe so does the Communist Party on any choice. Um, so, you know, whether that relationship continues to deepen to the point where China, where the Vatican decides to just simply dump Taiwan and, and go straight to China, we don't know yet because we don't know what uh, there's a you know there's a bunch of underground bishops that have been you know privately um, supported by the Vatican. What happens to them? What about the ones that were not that were appointed by China who were not supported by the Vatican? Um, there's so many potentials for here for conflict. Um, that, you know, I, who knows, really? I mean, it really depends on how all this plays out. And then also to add another element, I believe all, it was Cardinal Zen uh, as well who also called uh, the Pope, I think it was Cardinal Zen, who called uh, the Pope naive uh, in their dealings with uh, China. So, um, you know, there may be a lot of nasty shocks in store, uh, for the Pope co- going forward on this relationship, so uh, there's still, I think, a long way to go before we get quite we get all the way to severing of ties. Well, C- Car- the Cardinal has has been an outspoken opponent of uh, very, relations yeah. between the Holy See and, and China for many years. He uses very strong language, and it gets him an enormous amount of respect uh, among the public in Hong Kong for doing so. But we have to keep in mind that he is retired, uh, so he is a bit frozen out of actual decision making processes. Uh, not not just uh, here in Asia, and as far as on the ground uh, church activities, but also in Rome. Um, so uh, his influence on the Pope at this point is very minimal. Uh, also, an interesting aspect of this, and I, I, I was questioned about this uh, earlier this week in an Italian newspaper interview because they were very curious. What is the role of Taiwan's Catholic clergy, as well as the Catholic community here in Taiwan. And uh, we don't see the clergy here in Taiwan very outspoken on uh, these kinds of issues, religious freedom in China, for example, the activity or independence of the Catholic Church specifically in China, the decision by the Holy See to enter into this interim or provisional, as they like to call it, agreement with the People's Republic of China. Uh, we, we don't see a, a very active voice on this side here in Taiwan, so they appear for now to be playing it very cautiously, although uh, there's also a discussion here in Taipei that the vice president, who happens to be Catholic, will visit the Vatican and try to get a better understanding of the state of relations going forward. Though I, I would say at this early point, uh, if such a trip actually occurs, it carries enormous risk for Taiwan because frequently what we've seen uh, in, in the months or even year or so prior to the derecognition, whether it's president or the vice president or the premier, the foreign minister, whoever it is from Taiwan who visits a country that has formal relations, of course they say things are stable. Of course they say we love you and we're not going to break off relations. And they say that to the to the face of the Taiwan officials. And then months or a year later, they do break off relations. So there's enormous risk to the prestige of Taiwan's vice president, uh, to the institution, not, not necessarily the individual. Uh, to, 
if he were to go to the Vatican to make this trip. And I, I think it's you want to talk about naive or naivete. I think it's a bit naive to think that simply because he is a Catholic that he could change the dynamics of the Holy See or the Pope's decision making processes. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I don't think he has that much influence. Um, and he also, as a as a president, I think you're a vice president, I think you're right. I'm not sure that, that he could lose much prestige for the simple reason that he's kind of a non-entity, um, <clears throat> very easily forgotten. Um, as far as the role of Catholics here, I think part of the reason, there's a couple of reasons why they're not very vocal. Uh, one is that a lot of the Catholics came over in 1949 uh, from China. Um and so I, I think that, that there's a good – they make up about 2% of the population nationally. And then the other group are uh, – there's a lot of indigenous uh, Catholic uh, followers. Um, and neither of these groups are likely to speak loudly on China internal politics these days. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and Taiwanese lawmakers, expats and supporters rallied in New York last weekend for what has become an annual protest calling for Taiwan to be given a seat in the United Nations. Now, apparently some 500 people joined the march, which comes as world leaders are meeting in New York for the 73rd session of the UN General Assembly. Now, participants marched a 3.2-kilometre route that took them from the Chinese Consulate General towards the plaza in front of the UN headquarters. Meanwhile, in the UN, Isawanti, Kiribati, Nehru, Palau, Paraguay and the Marshall Islands all spoke up in support of Taiwan's participation in United Nations activities at the General Assembly general debate this week. However, the foreign ministry here in Taiwan has said that Guatemala and Honduras did not mention Taiwan during their leaders' addresses. Uh, 500 people is a relatively small turnout, especially if you consider that uh, these various non-government organizations uh, have been trying to uh, get Taiwan a higher level of participation in United Nations affiliate organizations or even full membership going back 15 plus years. Uh, so what one has to question the efficacy of, of this movement or why is there uh, such a relatively small turnout? Is it uh, fatigue? Is it uh, a problem with the messaging? We have to keep in mind in past years, uh, there was messaging uh, from the government uh, uh, called unfair, you know, UNFAIR, uh, or uh, Taiwan, I'm sorry, UN for Taiwan, which uh, for native English speakers wasn't exactly clear what the message is. Uh, the message now seems to be that uh, Taiwan can help uh, UN-affiliated organizations achieve their goals, or that uh, not including Taiwan in international health or aviation safety mechanisms is dangerous, f not for Taiwan or Taiwanese people, but it's dangerous for other countries' nationals. Uh, so far, the, the, this hasn't caused significant movement. Um, 500 people, uh, new messaging. Uh, we see the same activities occurring, which is Taiwan sends government officials who cannot attend the actual meetings. They meet with uh, foreign government officials on the sidelines. Uh, 500 people rally. Uh, 
there's a few nice statements by foreign government officials, uh, but nothing has significantly changed. Uh, so until not just the United States, but the, the key stakeholders like the EU and Japan and a few other countries around the world are really going to take a, a, a hard position on this. And we see the U.S. moving in that direction, but we don't know yet if that'll be enough. Yeah, the, as, far, as far as the the, the rally itself um, and all, all you know, and the the, the government stance, all that, Ross, I think covered that all very well. Um, what I what I think, or what I've noticed, is there's two things that are slight that are different. Um, <clears throat> one is that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been going into overdrive recently, writing uh, op-ed pieces everywhere from Manila to, you know, know, Rhode Island. I mean, they've been appearing everywhere, Um, talking about how without the U.N., the U.N. won't reach a lot of its uh, self-stated targets and goals on development, sustainability, and this kind of thing. Um, And so... Taiwan, instead of calling for, uh, you know, as Ross referenced, the old, you know, the bicycle, tandem bicycle ads and all that about how, you know, Taiwan needs to be in the U.N., <clears throat> they've given up on that knowing that's hopeless. But now <clears throat> they, they're going on a full-court press about how the U.N. functionally needs Taiwan rather than legally needs Taiwan because that just won't happen. Um, the other thing is, I, I play up a little bit more the element about where Taiwan sends over officials, because <clears throat> something that uh, I've noticed the Thai administration has been doing quite well is where China freezes Taiwan out, uh, Taiwan has been ramping up the number of people, politicians, um, <clears throat> government officials that it sends to the sidelines of these meetings, and is working hard to become a productive uh, part of these uh, you know, these these meetings, but on the sidelines, not on the general floor. And a lot, of course, a lot of business actually happens on these side meetings. So that may be an, a, a, a moderately effective strategy, uh, keeping Taiwan engaged. And that, of course, as long as Taiwan is engaged, it also means the countries that engages with uh, view Taiwan as a valuable stakeholder. Uh, in the you know in the deals that they make and then the international order that comes from these kinds of deals. So I, I think that the Thai administration has done a pretty good job on ramping that up. In this case, there was uh, several legislators, uh, the um, and the minister Audrey Tong uh, went there as well. So yeah. So Ross, I mean, you're from New York, Ross. I mean, a 500 people protest in New York. I mean, is that a, a, an easy day for the New York State Police? Maybe. You mean the New York City police, the New York City yeah, police, yeah. Uh, who have a lot of experience with managing protests, rallies, parades. Uh, well, if we look at the UN specifically and the kinds of issues that uh, often attract uh, rallies or protests or, uh, on the sidelines or outside of UN activities, Tibet comes to mind. And, and typically there would be thousands of attendees at Tibet-related rallies. Uh, it, it captures an enormous amount of public support, uh, not just by Tibetans, but by uh, Americans generally. Uh, but in New York City, whether it's the uh, Dominican Day Parade or the Puerto Rican Day Parade or the Celebrate Israel Parade, these are events that have tens of thousands of participants, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands uh, of spectators. So Taiwan, by, by or this specific uh, rally in support of Taiwan, uh, 500 uh, 
persons is not going to attract uh, attention of key stakeholders. Well, or we could look at another measurement, Gavin, besides simply the number of attendees. What kind of high-profile attendees were there, uh, whether it's from Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese-Americans, so there are famous Taiwanese-Americans, were any of them there, uh, or American politicians who are frequently at these events, whether it's Tibet or the St. Patrick's Day Parade or uh, Israel-related parades and rallies in in New York City. Uh, There's always American politicians who will show up, if for no other reason than they're looking for votes, let alone that it's the right thing to do. Uh, But uh, maybe I missed the news reports, but I don't see where any significant or any American politicians uh, spoke or captured a lot of media attention for being at this event. Yeah, no, I didn't see anything either. Right, we'll move on from the UN to APEC, and there were rumblings this week that China is attempting to block Taiwan's participation at November's APEC meeting in Papua New Guinea, with Foreign Minister Joseph Wu being quoted as saying that China is attempting to block Taiwan's participation and has also tried to introduce its one-China principle into APEC's operating framework. Now, the White House's senior official for APEC, who just happened to be here in Taiwan this week, said that the United States has always been supportive of Taiwan full membership in the regional economic bloc and is making sure that its membership will not be compromised. So, Donovan, China trying to stick the oar in again there. Well, I mean, we haven't... I haven't seen any confirmation from the Chinese side or other sides uh, other than Joseph Wu's comments and, of course, the AIT com, the, the APEC, uh, the U.S. APEC representative comments. What I noticed is that <clears throat> the U.S. APEC uh, representative... Uh, I, I believe that was who it was, or AIT, one of the two, commented about how uh, other economies, uh, with a very specific wording, um, that the United States and other economies in the WTO uh, found Taiwan's, uh, uh, they found Taiwan's uh, activity and involvement in APEC to be very valuable. Um, of course, that refers to Taiwan's membership as the separate customs territory of Taiwan, uh, <clears throat> the Pescadores, Jinmen, and Mazu, or whatever that full title is. Um, the, uh, now, if China's trying to get ta- Taiwan barred, that would be semi-unprecedented. Uh, so far, the only thing they've been able to do is where all the other APEC quote-unquote economies send over their uh, president in traditionally Taiwan is sent over someone other than the president um, but if China is starting to act more aggressively it'd be very interesting to see how they do it um, but at this point we don't I mean we obviously know what kind of levers uh, China uses they, they have leverage over uh, other APEC members um, but it, it, it's interesting to see how far they'll go, how you know how much they're willing to risk uh, from their side, political capital they're willing to put in to shoving Taiwan out when APEC was set up very explicitly in the beginning to make sure that Taiwan was included. Well, we have a few things we should keep in mind. The APEC representative who visited is uh, moving on to a different post. So there, there's probably going to be a, a period of time um, until that post is filled, uh, given the, what we've seen in, in the last year and a half of, of uh, the Trump administration and uh, how, how quickly it fills uh, some of the Asia-related policy positions. Uh, what that means for the U.S. influence at, at APEC uh, remains to be seen. Uh, also, President Trump is, uh, as of now, looks like he is not going to attend 
attend the Papua New Guinea APEC leaders meeting. Uh, again, uh, what that means for APEC uh, or China's ability to influence APEC and, and put pressure on uh, Taiwan's level of participation is also a significant risk for Taiwan. Third, the, the, there's been controversy here in Taiwan about who will represent Taiwan. Uh, unfortunately, President Tsai cannot go, so there's always been a proxy. In the past, uh, it's been the vice president uh, or former vice presidents, I should say. Um, in the first two years of her administration, President Tsai mistakenly, in my opinion, and we've discussed this previously on your show, Gavin, uh, selected James Song Chuyu, the People's First Party, despite his lack of a background in trade and business facilitation issues, it seems more like he was selected because he was a person that China likes, and media speculates that he was there more for the purposes of conveying some kind of message to Xi Jinping. Uh, But substantively, uh, other than some very, uh, in the scheme of things, insignificant agreements with the U.S. about uh, cooperation programs on various economic issues, uh, but not, I, I think Taiwan over the years has lost an opportunity to use APEC more effectively. Uh, and now uh, it's entering into this period of significant risk, uh, especially with the U.S. representative switch uh, in a period of switch and President Trump not attending. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to see if Taiwan is able to get other APEC uh, member economies to rally around its effective participation going forward. All right, Papua New Guinea, not sexy enough for Donald Trump, no? Uh, apparently not. There's also the the U.S. midterm elections, which are happening in the same period. So President Trump has decided that he has higher priorities this year. Right. And before we go this week, there was some rather alarming news about levels of microplastic contamination in water and seafood, with the Environmental Protection Administration saying that the Environmental Analysis Laboratory found that traces of plastics were found in 44% of tap water samples tested, and the survey found that 85% of the microplastics contamination found in said tap water were residue from PET, nylon and polyethylene. While 61% of the unfiltered water samples tested were also found to contain microplastic particles. Now, if you eat seafood, the survey also found that microplastics appeared in mussels, oysters, scallops and clams. So, will you be rushing out, Ross, turning on your tap, drinking a big chug of water and buying a big plate of mollusks? As much as I love the taste of fresh plastic in the morning... Uh, I will probably be a little bit more careful uh, about the the use of water. Uh, un- unfortunately, as as foreigners, and we have a lot of foreigners in the audience, you know, one thing uh, we've often been told is uh, you shouldn't drink the tap water in Taiwan. And then there's always government officials who say it is it is safe to drink. Uh, so it, it's it's unfortunate that despite Taiwan's extraordinary technological ability. Ability to build new infrastructure. We have this massive infrastructure spending program that's ongoing now and follows on one from the Mai Zhou administration. Uh, we're still struggling to get clean water in 2018. Um, that, that's that's really too bad. Um, as for the seafood, uh, being a vegan, uh, I have to say that when I see this news, uh, as much as I respect my friends who continue to eat uh, shellfish, uh, when I see this news, uh, it's one good reminder for myself why I've decided to become a vegan. Um, you know, I'm not at this point terribly alarmed about the the, the report. Um, I'm going to keep eating my mollusks. Um, 
and uh, drinking uh, water. Um, I, I mean, the the thing that the, there's several elements to this is that one. First of all, we don't know now. I, my my suspicion, I think most of us feel this way, is that it's probably not a good thing that we have you know micro quantities of plastic in everything. Um, but we don't actually know that it's dangerous at, at this point. As far as I know, there's no. Um, there, there are no studies which actually say that this is dangerous. It's obviously there's a potential that it is, but until it's proven, I'm not going to panic. Um, the other thing is, is that if you go out and study uh, pretty much anything, whether it's uh, you know mollusks or you take samples of tap water or pretty much anything, if you're looking for something, you're going to find it. Meaning, if you're looking for arsenic, you'll find it. If you're looking for fecal matter, you'll find it. If you're looking for uh, traces of you know, toxic heavy metals, you'll find it. Um, the question is whether or not the amounts that you find are harmful. Um, and again, that's far from proven in this case. Well, uh, that, that's an optimistic spin on, on these findings. Uh, of course, we should also compare it against uh, other locations, uh, other countries with modern water infrastructure. and Apparently how, Taiwan how came out okay on that. Uh, I, I haven't seen any studies that, that, that show that. but it, it, I, I did see a report suggesting that I think uh, most European countries were worse. Uh, I think Germany was better. It was, yeah. Well, yeah, well, we should that one aim, came out okay. Well, right? we should be, aim for be, right, sure. exactly. Okay. I mean, we should aim for for better than just okay, um, especially again given the enormous uh, technological capability here in Taiwan. Uh, but but the whole you know, questions uh, about the water system um, here in Taiwan is has been an ongoing debate. Right, we know that a lot of the pipes are old. Uh, there's a lot of leakage as well, which sometimes leads to water shortages in periods when there's less precipitation and, and the, uh, the, oh, the, the reservoirs yeah. start to empty. Uh, so it, 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 it's kind of odd, though, that despite the money spent and the technological capability and, and knowing that there are problems with the, the water system, we don't seem to have a, a positive or, or long-term solution. No, we just got a lot of plastic. There we go. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And have a good evening. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.